This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, our top stories on the virus, you've been hearing them throughout the day here at Bloomberg. Uh, those anti-malaria drugs that uh, President Trump has touted to fight COVID-19, well, they're linked to an increase of death and heart ailments. Meantime, you've got Oxford and AstraZeneca. They're starting to recruit subjects for advanced human studies of one of the fastest moving experimental vaccines. And then Dr. Fauci, uh, he said he was, quote, cautiously optimistic about Moderna's vaccine, boosting that stock once again. So let's get an update. Let's see what you really need to walk away with before we get into the holiday weekend. Dr. Ian Lusbader is Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, joining us once again on the phone from New York. Ian, good to have you back again. How was your week? Thank you, Carol and Jason. Hope you guys are doing well. Um, uh, I think it's been uh, uh, overall a a good week. You know, we are all transitioning, trying to transition back to uh, whatever a more normal environment is. Certainly, we're seeing uh, fewer cases in the hospital with uh, with acute uh, COVID-19. Uh, still a number of patients who are in the hospital, and certainly uh, we're still touched by death. Uh, yesterday, a colleague of mine who's a cardiologist uh, died, uh, not very old, at, at 70, and a very vital, great teacher. So I think we're all touched uh, one way or another by... Uh, friends or family or or people that we know. So it's still, you know, a very serious uh, disease. Uh, Fortunately, the numbers here are going down. There's some data, perhaps in South America, that the number of cases are going up, which is a concern. And we're trying to transition back to normal patient flow. What's interesting is a lot of the floors that were previously medical or surgical, uh, most of the hospital converted to COVID uh, patients. Those patients, many of them, fortunately, have been discharged uh, and now sort of awaiting the return of regular patients. And what's interesting to see is that volume is uh, not 100%. So it, it seems that many patients with, you know, abdominal pain, chest pain, uh, elective surgery needs are slow to return to the regular health care system. Uh, which which may reflect either, you know, fears about uh, getting care, maybe fears about getting COVID, but uh, certainly I think the medical system is ready to uh, return to, uh, you know, dealing with patients who might have postponed some of their care uh, right. and are anxious to have those patients back. So, Ian, talk to us about New York City at this point. You know, we heard from Governor Cuomo that by next week, essentially every region of this state, of New York State, will be in the phases, the early phases, and, and, and further along in reopening, save for New York City. We know about the density. We know about the fact that this was the epicenter, really, in the, the entire United States. Help us understand what needs to happen, because my understanding is is that part of it is available beds and, and basically hospital capacity. That is one threshold that the city has yet to meet. Help us understand that. Well, I think it's very hard uh, to turn on hospital availability like a light switch Mm. when you start filling up your hospital with you know elective surgery and uh, other surgical procedures or cardiac cases and so forth 
if there's a sudden surge in patients, you it's very hard to quickly get those patients out. So it's always better to anticipate what your needs may be, whether it's ventilators or ICU space. But it does seem at this time, whether or not uh, social distancing and, and mitigation measures have helped or whether it's the better weather, we don't really know. But the number of new cases does seem to be uh, reducing. So that's certainly very, uh, you know, encouraging. And I think we have to uh, address our regular patients and other patients, you know, to deal to deal with those issues. And I think this is really unknown. It's a new virus and how people will get back, how safe it will be uh, in businesses and offices. I certainly I think uh, people will begin to come back in a slower fashion. People who can work from home probably will still be encouraged to work from home. But I think there's a lot of benefit to people getting back to normal psychologically. Um, there may be some people who still want to work from home, may be more efficient. Uh, there are some people who say they're working longer hours, you know, from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Right. And, and actually uh, even being more productive. Yeah, I think Jason and I have had some of those conversations that, you know, I don't think, I think I went into this, wasn't quite sure how, how it was going to work. And I feel probably more productive uh, on a lot of different levels. Um, so it's kind of interesting, this experience. Um, what did you make of the president taking hydrochloroquine? So that, that has been asked to me by a number of patients and, uh, and colleagues and, and, and friends. And I think um, because we do not have uh, any medication really that we know of to reduce the, uh, say, incidence of, of uh, COVID-19 or the symptoms, we're very lucky that 80% of patients approximately more or less seem to do fairly well and a smaller percent. Again, for unclear reasons, we know some risk factors. Again, we talked about age and weight and diabetes and hypertension do deteriorate. Uh, we don't really have great medications to, to bend that curve. We certainly know hydroxychloroquine um, is very useful for rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, malaria prophylaxis. We also know from many studies it's not very helpful at all once you're hospitalized and used sort of late in the disease or when patients are very sick. There are a number of studies going on now to see in a controlled way, and we don't really have good randomized controlled studies. So, so those are starting now. But there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, small case studies and individual reports, where it does seem to reduce the um, Viral replication does seem to reduce the severity um, of the disease or maybe uh, actually prevent some people from getting the disease. Hmm. So they're used early on. It right. may be very helpful. And I think in the White House, where I to best guess 30 or 40 uh, uh, people there have it. Right. Uh, Ian, Ian, hang on a second because we've just got to take a, um, a break and we'll come back. We're catching up with our pal, Dr. Ian Lesbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU's Langone Medical Center, joining us on the phone from New York City. And when we left off, we were talking about some of the treatments that are out there. So, Ian, I want to ask you, since testing and tracing are going to be key to reopening, where are we on testing? What are we learning so far Um both in sort of broad strokes, but also sort of specifically, what have you seen here in New York? Uh, great questions. Uh, so in terms of uh, testing, 
everyone, uh, whether they've had mild or no symptoms or severe symptoms, wants antibody testing. And those are generally pretty reliable. We're using some of the national labs um, for a blood draw and IgG levels. And it's interesting to me that there are some people who were very sick and they have antibody positive. That's great. Not all unexpected. You've got some people who are very mild or no uh, known exposure and they're positive. But we're also seeing, and I would say the majority of patients who are curious, negative uh, blood tests for antibodies. And, you know, presumably that means those people definitely should be vaccinated when that is available and hopefully soon. In terms of acute patients who are ill, uh, we are now uh, able to get those nasal swabs. Some people go to local urgent care where they may get nasal swabs or the saliva test. Uh, many go to urgent care, too, and get antibody tests. R remember, that takes about four to six weeks after symptoms for the antibody test to be positive. But it seems there's a lot of curiosity. And when we get all that data, that will give us a denominator of how many people had exposure and really what the death rate is when those final numbers come through. Uh, but at the end of the day, because we have no specific treatment, even if someone is COVID swab positive, um, we really don't treat them. And that sort of uh, harkens back to what we were talking about before with President Trump taking hydroxychloroquine. That may either prevent a more severe disease or may prevent getting the disease or shorten symptoms. Uh, other uh, things, for example, vitamin D, uh, some zinc, um, vitamin C, all of those may play a role. I urge uh, patients to talk to their doctor about it. If you're vitamin D deficient, probably good to take a supplement. The hydroxychloroquine does have risks. People really should get an EKG baseline. We've used it for years successfully in rheumatoid arthritis and lupus, and patients do very well on that. Uh, if I was the president and surrounded by 30 or 40 people, uh, including my valet with, I wish I had a valet, but if had I had a valet who was sick, um, I would definitely uh, say, hey, maybe I should take hydroxychloroquine. There is hmm. some data. I'm not sure that's appropriate for everyone to do, and I think that's sort of the issue that you're a role model and you sort of everyone then says, hey, if he's taking it, should I? Right. That we're, we're really waiting for, for data on that. And so I, that will be out. I love that you said if, if, you know, maybe what the president is thinking that, you know, where I am and who I'm surrounded with, maybe it makes sense for me to take it. And so I'm going to ask my doctor, if you were his doctor, knowing his age and, you know, some of his medical health conditions and um, who he is, would you suggest he do it? That's, that's really a great question. There is no question he's in a high-risk group. Um, even though he is, appears overall healthy, uh, we don't know, I don't know his EKG results, but if you're overweight, that is a significant risk factor, and uh, certainly age uh, and male sex is a risk factor, so he definitely is high-risk. He's surrounded uh, by uh, very close uh, workers who, who have tested positive, I don't think it was really a crazy idea to take it. The next question is, okay, well, how long do you take it? What's the dose you take? Right. We don't really have that information. Studies are going on, but you're really guessing uh, when, you're, when you're dosing it as to what the right dose is and how long to keep someone on it. But in principle, it is not a crazy idea. 
All right. Well, Thanks, we guys. hope you have a terrific weekend, uh, Dr. Lesbader. Ian Lesbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine, NYU's Langone Medical Center. And I will say, just to give him a shout out, he has been such a consistent voice for us yes. in all of this. I really look forward to our conversations. I feel like I come out the other side smarter and, and really able to talk to people because we're all talking about this all the time, Carol. Correct. And being able to convey some information, not just to our listeners, but even in my personal life. Very grateful to Ian for that. Yeah. And I have to say, he's often given us a heads up on things that all of a right. sudden, like in a week or in a few days, are in everybody's head lines and in everybody's uh, conversations, but I really do feel like he's been ahead of the curve, so really appreciate it. Um, Dr. Ian Lesbader, uh, Lesbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at Langone Medical Center, on the phone from New York City. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. This story, Jason, is among our most read on the Bloomberg today. You and I were both kind of, <laughs> he's rubbing his hands together because we're so excited to talk to Ashley Vance. It is in the magazine's double issue. It's online. It's a story that came out of a phone call from Elon Musk to Bloomberg Businessweek reporter and New York Times bestselling author Ashley Vance, who, of course, as you know, wrote a biography of Musk entitled Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for a Fantastic Future. Ashley, also the host of Hello World. He joins us on the phone from Palo Alto, California. So Musk just called you up? <laughs> yeah. Hi. Uh, we, I, we uh, you know, we, ever since my book came out, we've had a bit of an unusual relationship, sometimes talking, sometimes not. And uh, it had been a while since um, we had any kind of really meaningful conversation. But, you know, there's this, this amazing moment that's coming up next week with SpaceX trying to launch astronauts to the space station. And, and I got a call from Elon on Sunday. And Ashley, you do such a beautiful job setting it up. And, and I don't want to take I, – I, I'm not going to – I was going to read some of your best lines. I'm not going to read it out loud because people just have to go read it and have the whole experience that we got to have of, of like sitting and reading and just sort of being enveloped uh, in this world. But the main point that you make at the top is that this should be a very straightforward like – declare victory, patriotic moment, you know, and you talk about like an immigrant launching people into space. This is what this whole country has has been about. And yet it is so much more complicated in part because Elon Musk himself is complicated. Help us understand why and what you really took from this conversation. See, and I just wanted to know, did you like, wait, Elon, can I just get back to you? I'm a little busy right now. No, I'm just kidding. Answer, answer Jason's well, question. I did. It is funny because, you know, I was already working on an essay tied to this launch because it is it is this historic moment. You know, we've been we've been relying on Russian rockets for, for about ten years to get humans into space and, and obviously it's such a grim time with the virus that I wanted to write something about look, you know, humans can do a lot when they really put their mind to it. We all work together, SpaceX and NASA, the government and the private sector doing something good and and Elon had already started to complicate <laughs> my piece because, you know, for the last um, two or three weeks, he's been especially flamboyant on Twitter. Um, he's pretty heavily in the COVID-19 truther camp. Uh, you know, he's been fighting to open his factories when, when people have been saying maybe that's not the safest thing to do. And so, so yeah, just it's not really complex. I mean, here's this um, super... It should be just a super positive thing for humanity at a time when when humanity as a whole is uh, is facing questions, and I think you know the U.S. obviously is as well. 
Well, all right. I know Jason said he wasn't going to read a line, but I am. And I agree. Everybody has to read this. But you write, so the moment of achievement is complicated, sort of like the right stuff meets the electrical the aid acid test, where the idea that anything is possible is as unnerving as it is encouraging. Mind meld, Jason Kelly. Um, it's such a great line. But but it is significant. My dad was very involved in the space race um, back in the you know 50s, 60s, 70s. Um, so tell us about this moment and really, you know, Elon Musk, you know, really does stand at this moment of doing something incredible for our country, yet at the same time, right, he kind of complicates everything he does. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of, it speaks to everything about Elon, I think, you know, SpaceX, of all his businesses, is probably the most improbable, and yet it is ended up being the most consistent, uh, reliable, and, and high-achieving of, of all his companies, so much so that NASA, which is this very traditional um, risk-averse organization, is willing to put human lives atop of a SpaceX rocket. I, I, you know, if you're, if you're not a space nerd, it's, it's kind of hard maybe to put what an unlikely achievement this is and, and how hard it was to do it. Um, I think... <laughs> then you just have the rapper of Elon <laughs> all around us. You know, there was a day when he was firing off um, a ton of his tweets that he was going to sell off all his possessions, that uh, we had to open the factories. And like at that very same moment, NASA was having a press conference with Gwynne Shotwell, the president of SpaceX, talking about the launch. And, and so you just have, you have these such extreme things where... Um, this is not your traditional NASA rocket launcher who's just out there um, giving a vision of public safety <laughs> and human well-being to everyone. Right. And so uh, we'd be remiss if we didn't ask you about some other sort of Muskian things, you know, not the least of which is Tesla, because, you know, despite everything, I mean, you go back and, and read sort of the headlines or a timeline over the past couple of years, you know, this is a company that's had lovers and haters. And, and it feels like most people are sort of binary on this, both from an investor perspective and even from a personal perspective. And, and you have a great line where you talk about, you know, defying when you, especially when you look across his portfolio, you know, like lottery-like odds to be successful um, here. Remind us of the Tesla piece of this, because in terms of influencing everyday life, he has had a massive influence there. Yeah, I mean, on the, you know, SpaceX is incredible. Tesla is, is, is a remarkable story as well. You know, without Tesla, I do not think most people would be talking about electric cars. And so the, whether you love Tesla or hate Tesla or think they're going to go bankrupt or turn a profit, I mean, the reality is that Elon shifted um, the car market to, to actually pay attention to electric cars and get consumers interested in them. In this particular story, uh, Tesla is strange as a result of Musk's tweets because a lot of people buy Teslas to kind of virtue signal that they care about the environment and they hope, you know, humankind ends up in a better place. Um, but because of Musk's tweets where he's been, he's been threatening to pull Tesla out of California and go to Texas, and, and he's been tweeting a lot of kind of alt-right stuff, he's suddenly now, now a poster child for, for conservatives and climate deniers as well. So it's a very strange situation. What's also, and I love the way towards the end of your story, you talk about Musk's larger ambitions, which I think some people are like, okay, this is the crazy side of Elon Musk, you know, building a human colony on Mars. But here we are with the pandemic and not quite sure about how this is all going to play out or really what our future is when it comes to, you know, devastating viruses and the idea of an alternative planet to maybe go to, not such a crazy idea anymore. 
Yeah, that's kind of the irony of it. When Elon used to people are like, why do you want to spend your money on SpaceX? He's like, well, humans might get wiped out one day, and we should have this backup plan. And people are like, whatever, man. You know, you're crazy. Why don't you go do something else? And then, you know, a plague hits the world, and then he, he he's denying it. But uh, but this is kind of the reason SpaceX was started at the beginning. And so there's a lot of symbolism in two humans actually exiting the pandemic on a mm. SpaceX rocket. Yeah. Well, it's so amazing and uh, fortunate for us, you are in a position to take that call, Ashley Vance, and write about it for Bloomberg Business Week. Could Check you imagine it out, if you everyone. missed it? Like you got it, your voicemail, and you're like, wait. <laughs> I bet they were going to connect. It sounds like he wanted. It sounds like he wanted to unburden himself. Ashley yes. Vance, you're the best. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Feature writer for Bloomberg Business Week, his book on Elon Musk. It's a great quarantine read. So timely now, given everything that's going on. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, as Jason Kelly and I have been talking, it's been the world tour for Fed Chief Jay Powell. I believe, what do we call it? Uh, the Lending Not Spending Tour. Lending Not Spending Tour, JP and the Feds. <laughs> we have heard from Jay Powell a lot over the past week, and he certainly has reaching been reaching out, getting his message across. Uh, what does it all mean in terms of Fed policy? Uh, let's get into that with Jeffrey Cleveland. He is Chief Economist at Payton and Regal. He joins us on the phone from Los Angeles. Uh, Jeffrey, great to have you back with us on Bloomberg Radio. First of all, tell us a little bit about your world out in LA. We know the world is slowly across the country reopening. Um, how have you been impacted? What's going on? Well, the work from home uh, protocol is going pretty well. You know, I'm able to adjust quickly to that. I think that the real downside here in LA, the weather's been beautiful the last couple of weeks. And only within the last week or so did they uh, open up the, the trails here. You know, I, went, I went hiking in the Santa Monica Mountains, which was great. And then down to the beach, you can, Carol, you can swim in the ocean, they said, uh, and run at the beach, but you, you're not supposed to sit on the beach and gather in, in, in crowds. So uh, it's a little bit limited. So, All right. Uh, so some, bit, some rules still, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we, we're looking at high-frequency data. So if you're looking at L.A. public transit, you, you had a huge decline in activity, obviously, during March and uh, April and into early part of May. But it, it looks like it's bottomed out. It looks like those high-frequency data uh, measures have bottomed out. So uh, if you want to find a silver lining, the, the April period was probably the worst. And we are starting to recover because things are reopening slowly. And so that sort of data, those are the same sorts of things that the Fed is looking at, that Jay Powell and his team are looking at. What do you think are the most important data that they should be taking into consideration as they figure out what the rest of the ammo could be in their arsenal and as they make recommendations around monetary policy, but also clearly influence the way we're all thinking about the economic landscape going forward, Jeffrey? I think if you had to pick one, I would look at Thursday morning. I would look at the continuing claims, the continued claims data, because that, for me, is in real time the best thing to look at. It's at 25 million as of yesterday's data, and it's you know continuing to rise. You want to see that plateau, and then you want to see that decline, because that would be a sign that the PPP program, for example, is working. People are being brought back on payroll. Right. People are finding employment. That we're reopening, and people are going back to work. So that's what I would watch. If that does, if that stays elevated, 
or doesn't come down as quickly, I think then people might change their tune about the, uh, the shape of the recovery here. It really all comes down to that. Are the people laid off? Are they permanently laid off? Are they temporarily laid off? Well, what do you think? You know, Jeffrey, you've seen a fair amount of cycles. I mean, what do you think? Do you think it's going to stay elevated? Um, we have lots of stories on the Bloomberg that say some of those temporary setbacks in the labor market will become permanent. Yeah, I think people, the hopeful people, the optimists are saying, you know, 80% are temporary and then most of them people will come back. I think it's much lower uh, than that, uh, Carol. I think maybe mm. something closer to 60% are, t- are temporary and 40% are permanent. Because you are, wow. I think you are seeing a reallocation here, a, a restructuring of the U.S. economy and the global economy before the crisis and after the crisis. And so that will be different staffing levels. That will be different types of people needed. So you won't just have, like, you can't flip the lights on and then everyone goes right back to work as they right. did before. The, the world has changed. Jeffrey, what do you make of all these discussions around some major demographic shifts and geographic shifts that we're hearing about? I mean, we're talking to you from the New York area. You're in Los Angeles. You know, you look up the coast from you to San Francisco. You know, these are all extraordinarily expensive housing markets. Now we're facing a situation where, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is saying 50% of Facebook employees may be remote in the next 10 years. Is that something that plays into how you think about the economy in the short and midterm? Yeah, I think, you know, the phrase I like, gradually, then suddenly, I think there was a gradual sort of murmuring out there about remote work and distributed work. And, but I think there was reluctance. You know, people were conservative or there's this inertia in the management of firms, and they you know, didn't want to go that route. And then a crisis happens, and then suddenly you, you get, have to experiment. And I can speak for our firm. It's gone really quite well. And so I think we've discovered through that process, hey, we can be very effective in communicating with clients uh, you know, remotely distributed. So I, I think that trend now is accelerating. What does that mean? I think my bias for certain geographic areas that have really benefited from the concentration of, of capital and wealth. San Francisco would be a good example of that. Uh, maybe, maybe that's the, been the peak, and, and now as, as people get more distributed, they'll, they'll filter out over the rest of the world. I think this is a good thing, though, for growth long-term, mm-hmm. uh, because this opens up the avenue for talent from all over the world yes. to be brought into the economy, and not just people who can make it and struggle in areas where, which are very expensive, like Los Angeles and San Francisco. So it's actually, long run, a very good thing. Right. If you think about, you know, how so many struggles, uh, so many uh, cities around the co- country have struggled, right? Because, you know, people don't want to live there because there's nothing happening. But if you can live anywhere and still work for Google or Facebook or our company or your company, I mean, think about um, what that opens up. It, it would be pretty dramatic in terms of changes for our economy. Listen, we just have about a minute left. You mentioned about you can do some hiking, you can do some swimming. I did not know this about you, but you are big time open water swimmer. You have swam across the English Channel, the Catalina Channel, um, and you've also uh, swam around Manhattan. I had no idea. Yeah, 28 and a half miles around Manhattan, up the East River, across the the Harlem River, if if you can call it a river. I don't know. You tell me. And then (laughs) down the beautiful Hudson. Uh, which was just great to finish uh, down the Hudson. I, it was, the, I thought, the cleanest of, of the three. So, yeah, that took eight hours and uh, about 14 minutes. So that those three together are considered the triple crown of uh, open water swimming. And I, you know, I did that, and 
At the time, I think, uh, Carol, I was the 34th person to do it. There's, there's been a few others that have joined that list now, though. Wow. Isn't that well, amazing? That's, that's incredible. I live about two blocks from the Hudson, a little further up in Westchester, and I have to say it is quite a beautiful river, so I'm glad you got to experience it in a way very, very few uh, people have. Jeffrey Cleveland, thank you so much. Great to spend some time with you here on a Friday. Chief Economist, of course, at Peyton and Regal, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. Carol? I, I think his point about what this upends in terms of yeah. the workforce is huge and yeah. might be a great way to really get more evenly distributed. We talk about the inequalities. What if you could just help rebuild cities around the country, around the world, right? By making it possible for people to, to kind of wor- live anywhere. Well, and also you think about the implications of those cities, Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, have in many ways become unattainable. Mm-hmm. Um, you have a huge homeless problem uh, in many cases because housing is unaffordable. Right. If housing comes down a little bit and you're hearing some anecdotal evidence of this already, it's a game changer for sure. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Listen, we want to get right to our next guest because this call uh, crossed the Bloomberg Terminal and it uh, comes from Bernie McTurnan. He works over at Rosenblatt. He's an analyst and he says the fitness and wellness company Peloton may be looking to make another version of its high-end bank. So Bernie joins us on the phone in Fairfield, Connecticut. Did you, you say t- bank? Bike. Bike. Did I say bike? Bank? You said bank. Oh, sorry. Well, maybe. Maybe they're going to make bank on their new bike. Maybe they're going to make bank on their new bike. It is definitely Friday. Bernie, thanks for <laughs> your patience here. Um Tell us about your note here, and you specifically cite some comments from John Foley, Peloton's CEO, that they have talked about launching a value bike. What what did you hear? Yep, thanks for having me on. So there was an article that was published um, in Time Magazine, and and talking about having a cheaper bike, and we already assume a cheaper treadmill uh, comes in fiscal 22, which personally I think is a bigger opportunity than the value bike, but the the conversation of a value bike is consistent with their recent discussion on affordability. And I think the reason why they're increasingly talking about affordability is because they've learned from the coronavirus is that their customer acquisition costs are just a lot lower than they originally anticipated. And they have a strategy where they their net customer acquisition costs, so the gross profit that they make from selling the bike or the treadmill, um, goes into sales and marketing expenses. And all of a sudden, they think they don't need to spend as much on sales and marketing. So that allows them to invest back in the business. Uh, and that means focus on affordability. And the reason why we like the stock so much is because of their subscription product. Once people right. become connected fitness subscribers, they don't churn off. Customer lifetime value is huge. So focus on affordability increases the TAM, drives more subscribers. Right. And that's really what this all comes down to. I mean, this is, and I know this is a tired metaphor, uh, Bernie, but I'm going to use it anyway. I mean, this is razors and razor blades, sort of 8.0, right? In the sense of once you get that bike and and full disclosure, I have one, Carol has one. um, And you really do get, A, it's hard to get rid of to to some extent. You're not just going to be like, yeah, I'm going to send it back. I'm not really using it anymore. And you're going to keep paying for it. And and it is, you know, it's pretty reliable from from a revenue stream perspective, I would imagine. Yeah, and the two analogies that and I, I completely get your razor and razor blade analogy, the ones that we like to use are comparing to Netflix and comparing it to Roku. So with yeah. Netflix, uh, this is a business that really scales. And frankly, we also cover Netflix. We have a neutral rating on the stock. But with, with Netflix, it's, um, you know, there's a lot of competition for their content. We have HBO Max launching next week. Um, you know, there's, 
it's it's a bidding process for all the scripts. For Peloton, um, it's not that same way, and it doesn't matter for them if you have a thousand people watching, um, you know, a, a cycling ride or or a million or two million. It doesn't matter. Um, and so it's the same thing. So we think that there's the economies of scale um, akin to Netflix, and then also with Roku is interesting because um, you know you're selling a device, and this is very similar to the razors and razor blades. But you're selling a device, and then you're making. You know, but the real reason is because of that, the ancillary revenues on right. top of it. So for Roku, it's advertising, but for Peloton, it's subscription. Right. right. Well, Bernie, how much of, you know, do you foresee too, and I think they're learning this with, because of COVID-19, you know, not only is it having their specific pieces of equipment, but just tapping into a streaming world. Yeah, well, I think one of the shifts that we that was was happening before the coronavirus was the shift towards home fitness. There were things like Tonal and Mirror. Mm-hmm. Nike was coming out with an app too. Um, so I think there's there was a shift towards home fitness coming anyways, and then this, and then all of a sudden, trends just got accelerated. Um, you know, I don't know who's going to be you know clamoring to go back to a you know a Soul Cycle or a flywheel and be sweating you know on the bike you know six inches away from someone else. So I think the Peloton already had an advantage business model just because there's not 50 people per class. There could be, you know, 50,000 people in the class. Um, so I think, you know, tapping into those economics um, really is what makes the business model so attractive and why we think they'll be able to win long term. Really quickly, 15 seconds, you've got a $56 share price target. Do you feel pretty conservative about that or you feel pretty good with that for the next year? Just quickly. I. I think there's still lots of leverage for them to pull to the upside where estimates can go higher from here. All right. Wow. Interesting. All right. Well, great stuff. Uh, really interesting note. And it's a stock certainly we've watched very closely since the IPO. Uh, love to keep in touch with Bernie McTurnan. He is an analyst for Rosenblatt Securities. Join us on the phone from Connecticut. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close, getting ready to wrap up the trading day and the trading week before the long holiday weekend. Larry Pitkowski is back with us, co-founder and portfolio manager at Good Haven Capital Management based in Milburn, New Jersey. And that's exactly where we find him on the phone on this Friday. Larry, nice to have you here. How, How are you doing? I am doing fine, Carol. Doing okay. How are you doing? We're doing okay. You know, it's amazing. Week 10, uh, and it's pretty remarkable of the folks that we talk to, and a lot of people are working and doing their thing. Uh, that's certainly, we know, un- unfortunately not the case for everyone, um, but moving along. And it's been an interesting week where we saw some enthusiasm come back into the equity markets. We continue to hear a lot from the Federal Reserve overall, and certainly the Fed Chief Jay Powell. Uh, what are you noticing that's kind of interesting in the trade and maybe what you're hearing from some of your clients? Well, it's been a very unusual period, uh, Carol. You know, we, our modus operandi over all the years at, at Goodhaven and in my prior life was to, you know, be very aggressive uh, investing when there is severe downturns and market volatility and panic selling and uh, the things that we saw in March. And I was aggressive 
in March, uh, we probably put about, you know, 30, 40% of our cash to work during those, you know, really dark days of market volatility. Uh, and now you've had prices uh, lift substantially in some areas, and you've had credit markets much improved. And I think you've shifted now from uh, will the economy and will the, you know, credit markets and banking markets, will everything function normally? And now you're asking the question of what are certain companies going to earn over the next six to 24 months, which is a lot harder. So I think you've, you've taken the fear of a lack of uh, functioning of a lot of important parts of the system. You, you put that over to the side thanks to the, you know, very strong efforts of the uh, Federal Reserve and, you know, Congress and the White House. And now you've got to sift through uh, as an investor and try and see if you are comfortable looking a bit forward. And some industries are relatively straightforward, but lots of others, you know, it's uh, it's a bit of a wild card. Yeah. So, Larry, walk us through some of that. I mean, obviously, you were making some initial bets, as you say, during a very dark period of time when most people were certainly running the other way. You know, you were running into this market, which is noble and, and probably paid off quite well for you, as as you alluded to and as Carol alluded to in terms of where the markets are today. How has your thinking evolved in terms of who may come out of this, either in terms of individual names or in terms of sectors? now that we are starting to at least get some sense of the shape of the recovery? Well, I think as, as I was looking at purchases to make during that period, and, and you know, I'm not, as, uh, I'm not as young as I look or sound, so I've seen <laughs> my share of downturns. But I think what was most unusual uh, about this one, and it, it is nothing that's been seen before by anybody, is you know to have a cessation of such a large part of the economy right. makes forward thinking very difficult for lots of industries where of some of the potential bargains are. And so you know there were lots of industries where you know where they're relatively straightforward, but that's not where the potential opportunities may have lied. For instance, uh, in the financial sector during March. I think there was a, uh, you know, a bit of a view that a lot of the alternative asset managers who had some leverage within their investment portfolios would be in for a very difficult period and might have some real problems. Uh, we had had our eye on KKR for quite some time. At Good Haven, we like to buy good businesses run by talented management teams where the management teams have skin in the game. and. You know, KKR has built quite a machine. Uh, assets under management are $207 billion. They've grown at about 17% a year since 2005. The employees in the management own about 40% of the company. They've grown book value at a, a very nice clip, I think about 10% a year since 2009. And as the share has really cascaded all the way down to the mid-teens, uh, we use that as an opportunity to make some purchases, which I think, you know, they've already worked out fine, but I think they'll work out very well over right. time, and I think it's still interesting. Well, and it's interesting about KKR, and keep me honest here, Larry, one of the differentials, I believe, between them and their competitors like Blackstone and Carlisle is that they are more aggressive or sort of structurally able to use their balance sheet, right, in a different way than, than some of those other names are. Yeah, Jason, I think that's a great point. I mean, they have become more focused on growing book value, uh, and they've been very articulate about that. And, you know, it's interesting. We own some Brookfield Asset Management, which yeah. we own because we own some oak tree, and it got bought by Brookfield. And Brookfield came at their current business structure being a grow book value for the owners and then build an asset management business. 
and KKR has come at it from have an asset management business and then focus on growing book value. And, you know, they've got, I think, uh, the CEO, the, uh, one of the executives said on the recent call, they've got something like 80% of the assets are locked up for eight years or longer. And so they're focused on it, as you said, in a different sense. But you've got a great underlying business. You've got people that seem to be very talented investors. They've got skin in the game. And they are focused on growing book value. And they have been very active. I think they put you know, $8 billion to work, uh, probably more by now, uh, during, let's call it, uh, you know, March and April, uh, including a substantial amount in the credit market. So we think that will serve uh, owners well over time. Is there anything you would not buy in particular in this market environment? That's a hard question, Carol. I mean, there's always, there's always things. I think you just have to look at something and see if you can uh, come up with some reasonable range of estimates about what you think the future looks like, and then how does that stock price or bond price compare with what you think the uh, company is worth? And there's always things where you just, you know, it, it belongs in the too hard pile. You just can't figure it out, or you think the price yeah. uh, is no bargain, or you think it's it's too dangerously leveraged. Or there's a, there's there, there should be very few things, even during a downturn. You've always got to be very picky. There right. should be very few things you're willing to do. You should pretend you've got, uh, you know, a, a limited number of decisions you can make right. in your investment lifetime, and it will serve you better. You'll make fewer, and hopefully there will be a better quality. All right. We're going to leave it there. I hope you have a nice long holiday weekend. Larry Pitkowski, co-founder, portfolio manager of Good Haven Capital Management, joining us on the phone from Milburn, New Jersey. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.